Welcome to Contamination Station, safer environment together, a New South Wales EPA-funded podcast. In these episodes, you'll hear from those working to implement contaminated land policies and procedures at the local level. By sharing our stories, frustrations, wins and losses, our aim is for this podcast to become a repository of information that will support those currently working to combat contaminated land and for those yet to come. Today's episode is a conversation with two very special guests, Dr. Danielle Toaz and Dr. Lang Jolstad. Danielle is an environmental manager with a Bachelor of Science in Environmental Science and a PhD in Environmental Geochemistry. She has over 10 years experience across the fields of environmental research, regulation, remediation, contracting, consulting, and corporate environmental management. Danielle has worked at multiple complex PFAS contamination sites since 2016 particularly at aviation sites or sites where multiple sources of PFAS exist. Her interests around PFAS fingerprinting, source delineation, remediation technologies and the circular economy. Danielle is also an active member of ALGA, having recently been appointed to the Board of Directors and is an Honorary Research Associate at Macquarie University. Lang is a Principal Hydrogeologist at Geosyntec Consultants with a Bachelor of Science in Geological Sciences from the University of California, Santa Barbara, and a PhD in Contaminant Hydrology from UNSW. He has over 20 years experience as a consulting hydrogeologist, specialising in contaminant fate and transport and environmental geochemistry. Lang is a New South Wales EPA accredited site auditor and a certified environmental practitioner, site contamination specialist. He's also an active member of ALGA Groundwater Fate and Transport Special Interest Group, and provides university lectures on groundwater contamination, sustainable remediation. He has provided consulting and auditing services for PFAS, contaminated properties for government and industry clients since 2015, including local development sites, fuel terminals, landfills, and airports. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the host and the guest as individuals and do not necessarily reflect those of the New South Wales EPA or any other organisation. Hi, and welcome to this episode of Contamination Station, an EPA-funded podcast. I'm your host, Chanel gleason Willie, and our guests today are Dr. Danielle Toaz and Dr. Lang Jolstad. Hi, Danielle. Hi, Lang. Thanks for your time. Hi, Chanel. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for the invitation, Chanel. It is really great to have you both here, uh, a different sort of conversation to what we normally have. So our first question today is that I would like to talk about your studies at the start of your careers. So you've both studied extensively with Yu Lang holding a PhD in contaminant hydrogeology and Danielle with a PhD in environmental geochemistry. So what was it that appealed to both of you? Basically, what made you want to spend a good seven to nine years in that field of study? Yeah, so to be um, completely honest, I actually kind of fell into my PhD. So I, um, I graduated during the GFC and there were very few jobs around at that time. But I got lucky and I managed to score a job basically being the equivalent of sort of Healthy Harold, but for sustainability and environment. So I used to go around to primary schools and try to teach the kiddies about environmental and sustainability issues. And that role was really fun, although children can be fairly brutal at times. But I knew I sort of couldn't stay in it long term, had a few of those roles actually. And through a sheer stroke of luck, the opportunity to go to Antarctica and do a PhD came up. And as a bit of a free spirit with nothing tying me down in those days, I just couldn't really say no and the rest is history. So what was the focus of your PhD? It's always so exciting to hear that people, you know, go to Antarctica to study. I have been there myself and it is amazing. So tell me about your PhD. What did you, what did you do for it? So my PhD was actually focused on chemical fixation of heavy metals in legacy landfills using orthophosphate and silica reagents. So there was a particular emphasis on reaction kinetics and how temperature influences the performance of chemical fixation in those remote cold environments. And I was, I was really lucky with that opportunity because I had an exceptional PhD supervisor and also my honours supervisor was similarly really supportive. And so those opportunities and experiences were really kind of instrumental in developing my technical skills quite early in my career. So were you, was your study focused around the peninsula or was it more on the islands where there was the old sealing and, and whaling colonies? 
So my project site was actually Wilkes Station, which was a station that was sort of abandoned sometime around the 60s, I believe. So yeah, it was an old legacy landfill on the peninsula. Oh, very interesting. And Lang, what was the focus of your PhD? Not nearly as exotic a locale as uh, Antarctica. My PhD was at a that old council tip, effectively, should become a, a golf course over the years, just south of UNSW. And I was looking at the, the flux of contamination, essentially, through the aquifer between the landfill and an adjacent pond and the variability sort of on small spatial and temporal scales of, of that contaminant transport between the landfill and the pond and, and the processes that you know, sort of control contaminant transport in that setting. I guess I, similar to Danielle, I, I sort of fell into the, the PhD track a little bit uh, on the back of my initial work as a consultant. So I have a, I did my geology degree in California. Mm-hmm. And from our undergraduate course, there was really sort of two tracks that people took. They either went into resources so a lot of people in my department went into you know, jobs with oil and gas companies or mining companies. And then the other cohort sort of went into the environmental track. And that was, I guess, more aligned with my interests at the time. So I worked as a consultant for three years in California doing you know, some quite interesting work. I got quite lucky with the consultancy that I was, it was my first job. And, uh, you know, they, they really had some big, interesting contaminated site work, and a lot of it was groundwater focused. And I guess that's what really piqued my interest. You know, I didn't have a, I didn't have a strong focus uh, initially into the, you know, specializing within the environmental industry when I started that job. And, you know, over the three years, it was clear that, that you know, to me, was, was really the most interesting part, how, how contaminants enter groundwater, how they move with groundwater, and how you get them out of groundwater. Mm. Uh, so we decided, you know, my, my wife's girlfriend at the time and I decided that we wanted to have a little life adventure and, and move overseas. And I knew that the easiest way for me to do that and have a, have a visa and a reason to be there was going to be to go back and do my postgraduate work. So I started with a master's degree track at UNSW. And then my supervisor, with a little bit of poking and prodding, said, you really should turn this into a PhD. So that was sort of how I wound up on that, on that track. Hmm. So with doing postgrad work, and then I guess also working in the industry, you must have seen some really interesting and exciting advancements in the fields of environmental geochemistry or hydrogeology. So can you tell me a bit about maybe some of the changes or advancements that you've seen over the years? Sure. So my, I mean, my focus has largely been in contaminant transport. So, you know, hydrogeology sort of covers a a broad range of topics. You know, there's water supply and security and and, uh, various other things. I guess what's has really drawn me to the contamination side is the the advancements and the understanding of the physical, chemical, and biological processes that all affect the movement of a contaminant with groundwater through an aquifer. What causes it to attenuate? What you know may exacerbate the transport of certain contaminants? What contributes to you know, exposure pathways, and in particular, what can you do to clean up contaminated groundwater in various different settings? And I think that is probably the greatest area of advancement over the past 20 or 30 years in our industry is moving from sort of these old paradigms of, you know, the only way to treat groundwater is to pump it out of the ground and put it through a treatment plant and dispose of it in some ways. And the technology and the techniques have come a long way towards, you know, more sustainable approaches, in situ approaches, you know, using the biology of the aquifers to actually enhance degradation of contaminants in the ground. So that 
you know, for me, I find that, you know, really interesting and engaging. That sort of driven, you know, it's been the, the common thread in my career. Um, and that's really my, my core interest. Yeah, sure. We will talk a bit, a bit more about that later on to have some questions to grill you with. But let's just uh, take a step, slight step back at the moment. I'm really interested to know that as an auditor, but with a speciality in hydrogeology, do you limit your, I guess, your auditing practice to that field or are you able to operate more broadly? I operate more broadly. You know, I audit across all types of scenarios. You know, the, the requirement for audits is often linked to land development. And that means it can be anything from a, you know, a single residential lot that just has a bit of poor quality fill on it to more complex, you know, industrial facilities or airports or, you know, so it kind of runs the gamut. I don't limit my my auditing to my technical background but mm-hmm. i do get involved in audits or have the opportunity to get involved in certain audits that have a strong groundwater focus by virtue of having that technical background so mm. the, the auditors in the scheme come from a sort of a diverse range of backgrounds you know some are jacks of all trades some are risk assessors you know i think all auditors will tend to have a reputation for what they're good at, if you know what I mean. So when you have a project that's sort of strongly focused on, you know, say, a groundwater contamination issue, it makes it a little bit easier to have an auditor that has a strong understanding of the fundamentals and is, you know, able to answer questions and make decisions, you know, based on their on their own expertise, I suppose, rather than being wholly reliant on, you know, getting, getting outside expertise to, to make those decisions. Yeah. Yep. And Danielle, you've worked a lot with Lang over the years. What form does this partnership usually take and how do you find it works best for an environmental manager or consultant to work with an auditor? Yeah, sure. I actually don't get to work with Lang as much as I'd probably like to. And I'm not just saying that because he's in the room, but I do believe he has to be one of the most talented and uh, well-respected practitioners we have in this country. So I'm always feeling lucky when I get a chance to work with Lang. But I guess in terms of that partnership, I have learned a few things that may hopefully benefit others. Firstly, I would say to get the auditor involved as early in the process as you can. We often get auditors involved even when we don't have to or there's no regulatory requirement to do so, particularly in environments where there are sensitive stakeholder relationships. So really for a project to be successful, you need to build trust and for all stakeholders to feel heard and comfortable to the best extent possible. And appointing an auditor can be one way of providing that comfort because it can provide an additional layer of rigor to the investigation process that I think can be beneficial. But when thinking of how that partnership looks, auditors also have to have boundaries and they have to sort of have that safe distance to retain impartiality. And that's got to be respected by all parties for everyone's benefit, including the integrity of the site audit scheme. And so one of the things I really enjoy about working with Lang is that he will tell me things I may not want to hear, but he has a great way of communicating and helping me to understand the situation. But I think the other important piece of that puzzle is pairing the right consultant with the right auditor. So as Lang mentioned, you know, every consultant has their strong set of skills. And so really like finding that right balance for a project, I think is critical to the success. So recently I was managing quite a complex series of investigations that needed a consultant with really deep technical expertise and similar expectations in terms of quality. And I was lucky to find that. And then paired with Lang, we ended up with a really great project team. Sometimes you don't need a consultant with that level of technical depth and you just need them to be adaptable and responsive. And I'm conscious of the fact that on some projects I can afford to be a really relaxed and easier client to deal with. And then on other projects where the stakes are high or the risks are really high, I can probably be um, a bit of a, a nightmare and quite difficult to tolerate because in those situations, they have to have a really high demand on um, quality because the work we put forward is not only a reflection on, on me or my consultants, but also like it's critical if we're trying to build trust with a complex set of stakeholders and it also reflects 
on my organization and my colleagues who are all sort of driven by trying to do the right thing to the best of our abilities. So finding that right cultural mix on a project, I think, is almost equally important. Yeah, and Lang, do you, do you, I'm assuming you agree with all of that. It was interesting to hear Danielle say that she can wear different types of hats depending on the type of project. Are you able to do that as an auditor as well, or is it really very much you have to come in and be very strict for regardless of what the project is? Well, the audit scheme has a very specific set of rules. So you have to maintain your independence. You have to comply with a whole set of criteria in the guidelines for the site auditor scheme. That being the baseline, every project is a relationship between people, really. So, you know, the ability to interact with people on different technical levels, you know, some clients uh, like Danielle are very technically savvy and have a really strong understanding of all the, you know, environmental issues that are subject of the audit. Other clients are have no idea, you know, it's, it's not their area of specialty. They, are, they may be developers, really all they want is to get your site audit statement and move on and they you know, don't want to know about all the details. You do have to be adaptable to all those scenarios as an auditor, you know, you, you don't get the luxury of necessarily getting to cherry pick all of your, your clients and your projects and your audits. You know, there's an expectation as, as accredited auditors that we are available to the market and people who need audits, you know, you're not supposed to be turning people away necessarily because you don't want to work with them. You know, everyone, you know, who has a requirement needs to be able to access an auditor. And that, you know, the relationship between the consultant and the auditor is an important one. You know, is it a consultant who will engage with you openly or are they, you know, do you get the feeling that they're just forever trying to just squeak past the line by the narrowest of margins? You know, all these things happen, you know, it's, it runs the gamut. So not only do you have to be technically proficient, but you have to be able to sort of read the room, I suppose, an auditor and figure out what level of engagement is required to get a project across the line whilst maintaining the independence and all the rest of the rules of the site auditor scheme. Mm. So with those, a lot of these projects that you have worked on both together and obviously separately as well, a lot of them have to do with PFAS. And I know that you, you're, you're both very you know, skilled in the area of PFAS uh, investigation and remediation. So when dealing with different contaminants such as PFAS, it is extremely important to understand your geology and hydrogeology to prevent such things as like potentially contaminating uncontaminated groundwater sources by your investigations. So can you explain what's important to understand when you're doing your investigations and doing things like drilling, screening and, and sampling for a groundwater well in these situations? Sure. This is an issue that isn't necessarily limited to PFAS. You know, in any scenario where you're dealing with contaminated groundwater, there's always a risk of making the issue worse by virtue of the way that you investigate it. There are some classic examples in the industry, and I won't name any of them in a specific way, of <laughs> contamination issues that started as, say, a, a relatively shallow groundwater impact issue that ended up as, um, you know, a very deep and large groundwater issue. Uh, and part of the suspected reason for that was that a shallow confining layer had a whole bunch of holes punched in it during the investigation phase, which then allowed this hydraulic connection between the shallower zones and the deeper zones that didn't necessarily exist. So it is very important in certain settings that if you are, if you suspect that there are multiple aquifer zones or multiple water bearing zones present, that if you're going to look at the deeper ones, you have to quite carefully case off the shallower zones. So there are drilling techniques where you can drill down to that shallowest confining layer, install casing, hydraulically separates off that shallow contaminated layer before you drill deeper. But 
depending on the contaminant type, it you know it, it can be quite risky, really, sort of if you're close to a source area, for example, and there's really high concentrations. You know, you you are sometimes better off starting from the outside and working in rather than trying to, you know, go deep right beneath the source and potentially turn a, a small issue into a much bigger issue. And which contaminants in particular would you say you'd have to be more careful of in those situations? Well, the classic one is a, the class of contaminants called DNAPLES, and that stands for dense non-aqueous phase liquids. Essentially, it just means uh, liquid chemical contaminants that are not water, denser than water. In their pure form, they're sort of oily substances or tar-like substances. Chlorinated solvents is a classic example. And when these are released in their pure form, because they're denser than water, they tend to just sink through an aquifer and they will pool on low permeability layers, so confining layers when they reach the subsurface. And they will sit there then slowly dissolving from, you know, where they've come to rest, if you will, in the subsurface. Problem is that if you punch a hole in that confining layer that they've come to rest on, they will follow the path of least resistance and continue down through that hole and continue to sink. So typically the highest risk in terms of sort of protection of deeper groundwater zones is when you're dealing with denapples and suspect that you may actually have the pure phase denapples present in the ground. The hydrogeologic setting may make a difference sometimes the deeper aquifers have you know a a higher hydraulic pressure so that even if you were to sort of create a connection between the two zones if you have an upward hydraulic gradient or a higher pressure in that deeper aquifer that will tend to prevent dissolved contaminants moving downwards but you don't often know that in advance you know you're starting with a blank slate first principles of hydrogeology and so you always have to approach every situation like that with a lot of care. What sorts of industries would you expect to see denapples as a, a contaminant source? Well chemical manufacturers and anyone who uses those chemicals there are you know the probably the the biggest denapple sites are typically associated with you know the, the manufacturers of those chemicals that have releases, gas work sites, the sort of the tarry waste from gas work sites, that's a denapple, and it's very common to have, you know, tar releases from those old gas work sites. When I started my career, I was doing a lot of work in Silicon Valley, south of San Francisco, and there's a lot of computer manufacturing, and, you know, microchip manufacturing in the area, and they're not producers of these chemicals, but they are high volume users of the chemicals. They're sort of used in the in the electronics manufacturing process. And some of those sites, you know, the, the we sort of herald the, you know, the technological advances that have come out of Silicon Valley. It certainly had an environmental legacy in, in some very large Dean Apple releases throughout South San Francisco. And that's much more recent than, than what we see here in Australia at, say, gasworks sites. Am I correct in saying that? Yeah, and I guess there are a lot of, if you look at the history of, of contamination, a lot of the sites we deal with started decades before people had an awareness of, of a release of contamination to the environment or that the the activities that they were doing might have a detrimental effect on the environment. So it was just, you know, it was just a case of, hey, you know, this is, these are the products that we use in this manufacturing process. And if we have to dispose of them, well, they go down the drain, that sort of thing. The electronics manufacturing industry, it would be fair to say that that was recent enough that maybe they should have known better. And you know, there's various reasons why, you know, these chemicals that should be sitting in a vat inside a factory end up in the ground and in groundwater. But 
I guess the there's been a lot of awareness, and some of that is basically from hard lessons learned by industry, I suppose, having to pay for some you know very costly cleanups that run into the millions of dollars. But the environmental management of modern manufacturing processes tends to be to a much higher standard in terms of preventing contamination occurring in the first place. Mm. And Danielle, you've worked with PFAS a lot. Can you tell me more about your work in PFAS fingerprinting? And how will this help us understand PFAS better? Yeah, sure. So the geochemist in me loves and sees the value in PFAS fingerprinting, but it's probably important to acknowledge that it may not be always required at every site or the depth of fingerprinting required will certainly almost vary. But I have a bit of an attraction to geographically constrained sites with complex hydrogeology and sites where there are multiple potential sources of PFAS in very close proximity. And then at those sites, the challenge really becomes centered around understanding who is responsible for what PFAS. And then the subsequent need becomes determining how to distribute responsibility and sort of split the bill for mediation between different organizations. So PFAS fingerprinting, when done correctly, provides one of the important lines of evidence that I think should be considered when trying to tackle these sorts of challenges. And then beyond the investigation phase, understanding the signature of PFAS in a given environmental matrix can also be very valuable during remediation, particularly in, say, a water treatment situation where you may need to understand what compounds are likely to break through an absorption system first, or in a soil remediation project using a technology such as soil washing you might find that some PFAS compounds are easier to mobilize and remove than others. And depending on what your remediation goals are, these sorts of things can really make or break a project. But I think your question's really well-timed because as an industry, I think we are starting to sort of move away from PFAS absolutism towards sort of proportionality. And at some sites, geochemistry and PFAS fingerprinting can play a vital role in that discussion because it provides us with the ability to ground discussions about proportional risk and liability and splitting the bill in terms of proportional contribution and how you distinguish who is responsible for what. And that is one of the spaces that I really enjoy operating in because a lot of complex sites get held up at that point. And if you can find a way to move past that barrier by reaching a fair outcome for all parties, then you can progress those projects to a point where we're able to sort of focus our attention towards taking meaningful action and hopefully actually achieving a positive environmental outcome. So what key indicators do you look for? This is a very new area for me. I don't really understand it very well at all. But to be able to apportion liability, how do you differentiate you know, company A's PFAS from company B's PFAS? Yeah, so it will vary across different sites. And there are other lines of evidence you really need to pull in. So like groundwater flow direction will be a really important line of evidence in that sort of holistic understanding of proportional responsibility. But there's a lot of information that you can gather back in the sort of preliminary site investigation stage around what products were used at a particular site, maybe if there were any environmental incidences such as a loss of containment or a spill. And they give you really important clues in terms of the the source. And so Firefighting foam is a really good example because often what you can find is that different organizations will use different firefighting foams and some organizations have quite good records and inventories around what foams were used when. And you can use advanced analytical techniques to really classify and characterize those foams well. And so what you might find is that some foams have a really strong signature for fluorotelomosulfonates and perfluoroalkyl carboxylic acids where others will be really dominant in the sulfonic acids and the sulfonic acid precursors, such as your sulfonamides. And so looking at what products were used by who and where can actually be really pivotal because you can have conversations around things like, well, I never used that particular foam, so we don't have a source of PFOS at our site. Our primary indicator contaminants per PFOA. And so It's using analytical technologies along with um, databases of product use, along with other lines of evidence such as the hydrogeology and groundwater flow to sort of pull that together holistically and sort of understand the issue more comprehensively. Thank you so much for that. That really explains it very well. Um, I understand that a bit better now, which is really good. (laughs) So we, we did discuss earlier on, Lang, about your 
I guess your background in waste facilities and, and your PhD looking at land, your legacy landfills. So something I've come across uh, a fair bit is that regional councils often need to deal with old poorly managed waste facilities that uh, potentially or actually have leachate issues or disused very old tip sites which were not properly decommissioned. So if you were asked to provide advice to a regional council, where would you start with your investigations? Sure. Now, this is a, uh, a contamination source near and dear to my heart. <laughs> Having spent a lot of time during my PhD looking closely at landfills and subsequently in my professional practice. Landfills are tricky in that for various reasons. They're in the contaminated land industry. They're considered a, a, a fairly mature and, and well-understood contamination source, but they sort of continue to surprise us. A lot of landfills and particularly sort of, you know, older tips that were, you know, operated in the 60s and 70s, and was very common throughout, you know, all councils, typically weren't designed with liners, leachate collection systems, landfill gas collection systems. You know, often they started as a, you know, maybe a quarry, you know, there was just a hole in the ground that was convenient to fill up with, with waste. And so... Everything that is in that landfill waste ends up coming out in the form of, as it degrades, in the form of landfill leachate and the generation of landfill gas from the degradation of the organics. One of the problems in approaching these old legacy landfills, and especially like, you know, old council tips, is that A, they're quite large sources. They can be very diverse. I mean, you can imagine, you know, anything and everything ended up in the landfill. So we often think about certain, you know, indicator parameters of landfill leachate. There tends to be a lot of ammonia. There tends to be a high dissolved organic carbon load. But, you know, you could have the full gamut of contaminants in a landfill. There's petroleum hydrocarbons, chlorinated solvents, there could be metals, there can be pesticides. And most recently, there tends to be a lot of PFAS. You know, that was broadly used in a lot of consumer products. Those products end up in the landfill. And that PFAS, just like all the rest of the contaminants, leaches out. So how do you deal with them? You know, a lot of, you know, particularly regional councils, they, you know, they're not exactly flush with money to go do extensive investigation of, of all these legacy landfill sites. My recommendation is always to start with the end in mind. So... Consider where the likely risks are, the highest risks. You, know, you, can, you can start with a conceptual idea of a hydrogeological setting, which way is groundwater flowing, if there's gas being generated, are there any structures in proximity to that old landfill? Identify those really high-risk exposure pathways and focus your efforts there. You know, you'll never... 100% characterize what's in a landfill. And it probably is a bit of a waste to try to do that. You're much better off looking at the emissions from the landfill. And then in that regard, really focusing on the ones that may be problematic. You know, landfill gas poses an acute risk, an explosive risk if methane accumulates within a, within a structure. So that's, you know, probably your, your highest immediate risk to health. And then look at the potential impacts to groundwater resources from leachate discharging into, you know, from the landfill into a groundwater system. And, you know, where's that groundwater going? Is it issuing into a lake? Does it come out the river? Are there water supply wells down gradient? So my, my advice really for a council of, you know, finite means to undertake these investigations is to try to work out where the highest risks are likely to present themselves and really focus on those. And then you can make decisions, you know, sometimes you, you do just have to do the hard work and, you know, put in mitigation measures, you know, interception trenches, gas collection systems, you know, if there's a high enough risk, you know, you you will have to do that to mitigate the risks. But to make the best value of limited funding to investigate these old sites, 
look at the, the riskiest pathways first. So I guess this also brings me to remediation and remediation of groundwater, as we mentioned earlier as well, has moved a long way over the last 15 years from the, the pump and treat to in-situ technologies. So you mentioned that you've come across and used quite a lot of these. Can you tell me about your, I guess, your experience with how successful they've been and, and the progress over the last 15, 20 years? In the good old days or the bad old days, groundwater remediation basically started as pump and treat systems. So you pumped groundwater out of the ground, you sent it to a big engineered treatment plant, and that was the way that you got contamination out of the groundwater. And what the industry found over the years is that, you know, A, it's very energy intensive. B, it's quite expensive way to treat contaminated groundwater. And C, you get to a point of diminishing returns beyond which you get a asymptotic level of uh, contaminant removal using these techniques. And the, the industry over probably the last 15 to 20 years, looking at, you know, different drivers, it's not always, you know, very convenient to set up a, a water treatment plant on some people's facilities. And people learned that different classes of contaminants can be degraded in the ground, either chemically by injection of chemical amendments, or the area that is probably of greatest interest to me is using the, the local biology to degrade contaminants, enhanced bioremediation. And this is an area that Geosyntec has put a lot of internal research and development into, and we see a lot of application, you know, growing application in the industry. I would say in Australia, there's, there's always been this perception that from a contaminated land remediation perspective that Australia may have lagged behind, say, North America or Europe by, you know, say, 10 years and, and the progress of, of some of these technologies. Some of that is just due to the differences in the regulatory schemes. And I think when some of these in-situ remediation techniques were first being adopted in Australia. I think there was a little bit of a negative experience with some of these because conceptually it seems quite simple that we're going to inject a chemical into the ground, that chemical is going to interact with contaminants and break them down. Actually performing that task is, is quite complicated. And I think it wasn't given its due regard by some of the early practitioners. And so there's actually some, you know, lots of examples of failed in-situ remediation projects because they just weren't performed by people who had the right experience to be performing them. And I think that made the industry a little bit gun-shy for a while to adopt these techniques. And because in Australia, it's now sort of recovering from that initial bad experience, perhaps, as, you know, the, the, the skill set and the competency in the contaminated land industry has ramped up and, um, you know, you start to see some real success stories. Um, but, you know, they're much more, I, I do a, a lecture on sustainable remediation at UTS. A lot of these techniques use a lot less energy, a lot less water, you know, they don't involve truck movements. They're not generating, you know, tons of carbon dioxide to clean up grams of contaminant, that sort of thing. And, you know, as, as a society and certainly in, in, you know, the corporate world, uh, sustainability has become a really important metric. And so, you know, cleaning up a contaminant is, you know, always viewed as positive. But as people started to calculate how much waste are you generating how much resource are you consuming to actually clean up that contaminant? Are you actually doing more harm than good, depending on the technique that you're using to clean up, you know, what in some cases amounts to grams of contaminant in the environment? And that's one of the benefits of these in-situ techniques is that they, they are less resource intensive and they're less impacting on the surrounding communities generally and they achieve the same outcome. And so if you can achieve the same outcome with, you know, less 
consumption, less waste generation, why not choose that option? Mm, and it, it fits definitely more closely in with the the aims of the industry around your you know risk management for for your sites. Looking at, as you said, is it going to is remediating the site going to be a net gain or a net loss in terms of yeah your sustainability and and usage of of different emissions and all you know how all that sort of environmental sustainability issues and Daniel. Have you got um, some technologies that you've had some first-hand experience with which are fairly new to the industry? Yeah, so actually fairly early on in my career, I was in a supporting role with a dear friend of mine's PhD, which was led through the University of Melbourne on um, permeable reactive barriers, particularly application of zero valence ion to heavy metals. And that was that was a really interesting project and a great sort of learning ground for, for those sorts of more passive, sustainable in-situ technologies. But I think Globally, there's some really cool developments happening in the world of microbial kinetics at the moment. So yesterday I was reading an article in Applied Geochemistry, which explored the interface essentially between microbiology and geochemical kinetics, specifically in relation to how you assess and monitor microbial kinetics to better understand how chemistry, thermodynamics, temperature, nutrients, redox and organic matter and all those wonderful sorts of things can either sort of impede or enhance remediation. And I'd love to see more of that research manifested in groundwater remediation projects. And I think as Lang alluded to, as the drive for sustainable remediation gets stronger, I think we'll likely see more of that kind of work coming through. Thank you. So I'm going to take a step back now to back to basics in hydrogeology. And I'd love for you to explain how to determine groundwater flow rate and direction. Uh, and in what situations does groundwater flow in different directions to what you might normally expect it to? So in the most basic terms, groundwater flow, groundwater moves from areas of higher pressure to lower pressure. And that is often expressed in terms of uh, hydraulic head, which is basically the water level in an aquifer corrected to a datum. So the way we Typically determine the direction of groundwater flow is that you install wells. Those wells are screened within the same aquifer, so you're looking at the same unit, and you measure the depth of groundwater in those wells. Uh, you correct that depth of groundwater to an elevation from a datum, and you compare those elevations between the wells, and effectively you are moving, you know, water moves downhill in that regard. So you can create contours, just like topographic contours on the ground surface, you can contour the hydraulic head values, and that will give you an idea of where groundwater is flowing. Um, obviously, the more wells you have, the spacing of the wells will give you a better resolution on that groundwater flow field. There's lots of examples of sites where, you know, broad assumptions were made on the basis of a small data set, small number of wells as, you know, the, the monitoring network grew. Things changed quite a bit in terms of the understanding of which way groundwater was going. It can be complicated in the built environment because there are lots of things that influence groundwater, particularly a lot of contamination issues start at the ground surface. And so the first and typically most contaminated groundwater zone is the shallowest one. You know, So contamination moves the subsurface to outer water table. And that tends to be also the zone that has a lot of interaction with infrastructure. So it may be you know, buildings that have free draining basements. It can be sewer mains that leak you know and groundwater flows into the sewer main or they leak outwards and it you know forms a you know a, a hydraulic high point and that that some of those little complexities on a on a regional scale you don't think much about them you know they're sort of a blip on the radar they're very localized issues but when you're talking about a contamination source that's also on a localized scale some of these sort of influences from you know, whether it's construction dewatering at a site across the street, or it's an old, you know, heritage, you know, high volume sewer main that, you know, draws groundwater in from, you know, all around can have a real outsized impact. And those are the sorts of things that might 
result in groundwater flowing in a direction that you didn't think it might be flowing from the conceptual setting. You know, there's always, you start with a bit of an idea from first principles that, you know, often groundwater recharges areas you know, high topography flows essentially downhill, discharges in low areas of the rivers, lakes, at the coast. But, you know, these, these various factors can have a, a really big influence at a local scale as to where groundwater actually flows and therefore where are the risks, you know, where's the contamination going? Is it actually going the direction you thought it was? And you've installed your wells in the area you thought groundwater is flowing and there was no contamination there so there wasn't an issue and then you refine that understanding and you figure out oh actually it's all going the other way (laughs) and it actually is a problem you know it is a risk at the neighboring property yeah and i guess it's so important to remember in your design when you're dealing with small sites because i guess yeah in, in the contaminated land industry is you know as a practice don't often deal with landscape size groundwater monitoring network. So yeah, definitely something to, to keep in mind. Uh, in regional New South Wales, especially in Tamworth where I live, the groundwater can be very deep. And I know this is you know an issue in a lot of regional New South Wales. Now, a rule of thumb you know, historically has been that if groundwater is below 20 metres below ground surface, then it's unlikely that it will be contaminated from surface activities. Obviously, unless as discussed earlier, a border has provided some sort of a new migration pathway. Do you agree with this? Well, I think this was based on a lot of empirical data over the years of the contaminated land industry that, you know, if you have a release of a liquid chemical, for example, say drive hydrocarbons, that then has to migrate through, you know, 15 to 20 meters of unsaturated soil before it encounters the water table, you may see a lot of attenuation of that contaminant before it reaches the groundwater, or it may never actually reach groundwater. The problem is that's just a a broad generalization. There's a lot behind the the likelihood of that contaminant propagating all the way through an unsaturated zone, you know, volume of the release, you know, are there geological features that actually perform as preferential pathways so that you know even though it may be you know groundwater at great depth there there may be you know fault zones or bedding planes or you know fractures in rock that promote rapid movement of contamination through the subsurface so i'm never like as an auditor i'm never a hundred percent comfortable when a consultant comes to me and says well the groundwater here is 15 meters, so we're not going to install any wells because we reckon it's not a problem. Typically, I will say, well, I'd like to see at least one well, and you prove it to me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely good. What's the most interesting groundwater-related project or remediation that you've both been involved with um, or individually? I'll give one example, and this was sort of related to the the rise of the coal seam gas industry, maybe 10 or 15 years ago, particularly in Queensland, I was doing a lot of work around hydraulic fracturing risk assessments. You know, fracking, very emotive issue. You know, the, a lot of this work was occurring in areas where there were high value groundwater systems supporting agricultural industries, lots of concern about whether, you know, fracturing these deeper sort of coal measures was going to create hydraulic connections between the shallower sort of high value groundwater resources where the chemicals used in the hydraulic fracturing fluids going to broadly contaminate these groundwater systems and it brought together a really complex and diverse set of disciplines and expertise, I guess, to try to work through these issues. You know, the the ability to model fracture propagation from these hydraulic fracturing operations, the characterization on a very large scale of some of these groundwater systems. I mean, you know, they were groundwater systems that were well understood, but, you know, 
we were previously talking about the you know the small local scale issues. This is really the regional issues. You know the Great Artesian Basin. You know groundwater systems being considered over hundreds of kilometers scale, and the understanding of the hydraulic interaction between those systems that had never really been characterized to that extent in the past because there wasn't necessarily a, a need to do it. So that. You know, walking into this project, you almost had to start from first principles in terms of getting the hydrogeology right, being able to make predictions about how hydraulic fracturing, you know, the extent and where you might make connections in the ground, and then the fluids, you know, lots of concern about what's these hydraulic fracturing fluids, and they're highly confidential. You know, these are these are fluids that oil field operators you know, it was the basis of, you know, billion dollar industries. So they don't want to sh share their secret sauce. And that was probably the highest level of confidentiality agreement I ever operated under. That, you know, they were forced to show the full recipe. And, you know, we, in this process, on the back of all the hydrogeology, then had all the toxicologists coming through all of these uh, chemicals. Lots of them were, you know, weird and wonderful things. It's only there at you know fairly small concentrations, but yeah, that was quite an interesting undertaking from a groundwater perspective, you know, both because it was such an emotive issue and because it was quite a complicated one to try to assess from an impact perspective. Hmm. Thank you. And Danielle, what's your most interesting project? Some of the more interesting projects I've had the opportunity to be involved with involve that complex geology piece. So things like fractured bedrock where access and rebound is an issue, but also commingled flumes where you have two different types of contamination, which are not necessarily complementary from a remediation standpoint. So then you have to start considering things like the order by which you remediate and the impacts associated with that, which isn't always straightforward. So for example, if I treat contaminant A using whatever technology, will I mobilize or exacerbate contaminant B? But then to Lang's earlier point, the risk needs to be factored into that decision. So what if contaminant A might be higher in concentration, but contaminant B could generate a vapor risk? Then you may need to remediate contaminant B first to ensure that you are doing everything possible to minimize the risk of harm to receptors. And then there are those projects where you come across plumes that have like a 3D or diving element, and that can really throw the conceptual site model totally out of whack and change how we understand a plume to move or behave. So yeah, a few complicated ones and they are always the, the more interesting and, and challenging ones from a practitioner standpoint. Mm, a puzzle. So uh, do you head into the type of projects where you lay in bed at night thinking about them all the time? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so a, a very topical industry at the moment is renewable energy projects. So you've got your battery energy storage systems, wind farms, solar projects and the transmission line itself. And in, particularly in re regional Australia, these are very hot topics with a lot of people. Now, I guess looking at it from the surface level, you would think that groundwater and contamination may not really play too much of a part in these new projects. But I was really interested to find out from, from you both, are there any particular groundwater or groundwater chemistry issues that these projects uh, will face either in construction or operation, or even, I guess, in the decommissioning phase and, and potentially as legacy sites for us that we'll have to deal with in 35 years' time? It's an interesting question. I had the opportunity to review the portfolio of energy assets for an energy company from a contamination perspective, and that included solar, wind farms, hydro, and essentially what we found was that there was, they were relatively benign from a contamination perspective. A lot of the infrastructure is just at the surface. I mean, if you think about groundwater contamination, typically that comes from the use of some sort of substance that gets released. And so you have physical infrastructure at the ground surface that isn't, you know, doesn't necessarily rely on, you know, hydrocarbons or other you know, sort of classical source of contamination, the actual contamination footprint was relatively benign and sort of limited to, you know, maintenance sheds that sort of had chemical storage areas, that sort of thing. I suppose 
on the the groundwater resource and, and you know impacts to people's access you know like any big construction project if there's you know large-scale construction dewatering that always has a risk of you know lowering water tables albeit usually temporarily but in most developed groundwater sources there's competition between various industries for the water you know the water is licensed there's a finite amount that is available in the water market uh, sometimes some of these big projects are granted water extraction volumes that surprise people given that you know the, the rest of the users of that aquifer don't have access to those sort of volumes yeah it's it's not an easy one to solve and it's usually quite emotive Mm. And a lot of these projects are now uh, being reclassified as critical state significant infrastructure, which I guess gives them a whole different realm to play with. And some of these projects are proposing to use mainly groundwater for construction purposes and in several cases exceeding the usage of local towns' water per annum. So, for instance, the Energy Co. Transmission Line EIS states that groundwater extraction will be 88 megalitres annually just for dust suppression. Any comments on, I guess, what this means in terms of, yeah, the, the groundwater supplies and extraction out in Western New South Wales? I suppose I would just hope that their environmental assessment of that activity is, is done with a high level of rigor. You know, typically, if you're looking at a planning approval process for an activity that involves groundwater extraction, there's an expectation on a minimum amount of characterizing of that groundwater resource and predictive modeling to see, you know, if I'm extracting these volumes over this particular amount of time, how much drawdown will there be in the aquifer? You know, how long will that carry on? And how long will it take to rebound? And particularly in water sources that are heavily developed for agricultural purposes, you know, these are groundwater resources that may already be under stress simply from the existing uses and the, you know, the additive effect of having another large extractor, you know, superimposed on the stress from all the other uses, you know, can limit people's access to the water, the water quality, you know, they end up drawing in older, deeper, more saline groundwater, you know, once once you impact the groundwater quality in that way, it's much harder for that to recover. You know, if you've drawn in really old groundwater that's been in contact with the subsurface for a long time and has very high salt load associated with it, you know, once the genie's out of the bottle, it's really hard to stuff it back in. Mm. And just off the cuff question, I know that radiation from naturally occurring uranium can be an issue as well in regional New South Wales. Is that something that we should be considering? Good question. You know, that's one of the big gaps in my consulting career is radiation. <laughs> so I don't know that I'm going to be very enlightening on that. You know, in the U.S., naturally occurring radiation in the form of radon is, is quite a big issue. And, you know, that really was the basis of a lot of the vapor intrusion mitigation work that's done today for volatile chemicals was, was based on research that was done to um, prevent radon intrusion into people's houses. I don't have a great sense of the magnitude of that issue in Australia, but the fact that there isn't a, you know, a, a highly developed radiation mitigation industry in Australia suggests to me that it's either something that people don't know about or that it's not quite the risk that it is in other places. I don't know, Danielle, do you have, have you had any experience in, in that regard? I have not. And I suppose the only thought that I would have is obviously this is where it's really important to sort of get the basics right, like your um, environmental setting and your understanding of the geology and the hydrology, because but it is easy to miss things like this if you don't know what you're looking for and you don't pay attention to detail, but no direct experience, unfortunately. Well, fortunately. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, thank you very much both for um, being a part of today's conversation. It has been really, really interesting to have these chats with you. 
it's an absolute pleasure to have you on the um, contamination station today. Thanks, Chanel. Thanks so much. That wraps up this episode of Contamination Station podcast. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Contamination Station, Safer Environment Together, an EPA-funded podcast hosted by Chanel Gleeson-Wiley. We hope you've enjoyed our chat and been inspired to continue working towards a safer environment together. We would love for you to stick around for the next episode. So keep those headphones on, grab another cuppa, and settle in for more insightful stories.